I met my best friend Anne in 1985. And the Babysitter's Club kept her friendship alive. Then Emily was born in 1988. And she said, Thanks, Aunt Esme. These books are great. Now we're all grown up and we're living our dreams. As a writer and a scholar and an expert on teens. And we're gonna start again from the very first book because we're stuck. Welcome to Stuck in Stony Brook, a podcast about the Babysitter's Club. Today we're discussing book 47, Mallory on Strike. What a strike this was. Well, I don't uh, want to give away my one sentence summary, but was it? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's jump into our little summaries. Um, mine is Mallory learns that to be a good writer, you have to be annoyed at anyone or anything that interrupts you, and you have to be in a bad mood all the time. Oh, well, that sounds about right based on your career, Anne. Yeah. What do you mean? This has nothing to do with me. <laughs> what? Oh, wow. Okay. I mean, I did write that from my point of view, so as Miss Crack. <laughs> oh, did you? <laughs> Shock. <laughs> okay, mine is Mallory is taken for granted, wins a writing prize, and then suddenly better appreciated by her giant family. Oh, um, I already told you what mine is, but I'll tell you again. Did Mallory go on strike? (laughs) (laughs) It's a question. Anne's been doing questions lately. You decided to do a question this time. No, I stole it explicitly from Anne. Oh, oh, it was plagiarism. Come up with something creative of my own volition. Yeah. (laughs) Fair Uh, enough. I'm so annoyed. Yes. Well, now you have to, what was the thing that you said? Learn that writing is all about being annoyed. You or something? Yeah. Yeah. Good. Well, you know what? You and Mallory are both Tauruses. So just saying. Yep. More evidence that Anne's a Mallory. Mm-hmm. Wait, we should probably back up and tell you about the members of the podcast. <laughs> I'm Emily Crandall, a feminist scholar. I'm a total individual and I like health food. <laughs> I'm Esme Schaller, an adolescent psychologist. I'm kind of bossy, but I have a big heart. And I'm Anna Chikala, a freelance writer. I'm a mischievous pragmatist with a sweet tooth. If you want to learn more about us and how we know each other, check out our prologue episode. Also, rate and review us. It really helps people find the podcast. And if you have any questions, comments, or commentary about anything BSC related, drop us a line at stuckinstonybrook at gmail.com. Also, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash stuckinstonybrook. Oh, it looks like we have some new patrons. So thank you, Sarah Smiles and Betsy Allen. A pizza toast to both of you. Wait, Sarah Smiles is like... Amazing. Yeah. Woo-hoo. <laughs> Pizza toast to Sarah and Betsy. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's very exciting. Okay. So the plot of this book. I think we Emily's, covered it pretty well in yeah. our summaries. <laughs> Emily is obviously going first. Well, the one Frankly. thing we didn't talk about is that it's sort of very similar to the plot of Marianne, Mrs. Logan, which was the it's book right before this. Exactly the same plot. There's a famous author that comes to the school someone's nervous about something and takes it out on other people like what the fuck is worth okay yeah it's identical and this one is ghost written did we was was marianne on strike not ghost i mean it was marianne not. on strike haha <laughs> marianne on strike marianne mrs logan was written by anna martin and then this one has not one but two ghost writers look at this weird one i have oh is that a hardcover it's a hardcover and it's like twice the size of the other one. Oh, it's like and a special large like print really big. Yeah. library edition. I guess for like people who's who can't read that small of print. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Oh, Anne still has the Mallory bookmark in hers. Wow. 
Nice. You could sell that on eBay for some ducats, man. Yeah. How much <laughs> money could I sell this on eBay for? <laughs> Honestly, probably like $1,000, so you should do it. <laughs> Ooh, cool. You can tell who, who kept their books one way and who kept their books another way. Here's my here's where the Mallory bookmark is supposed to be in my. Is that a dig at me or? No. Well, oh, that's a good question. Did I tear it out or did Emily tear it out? We'll never know. I was probably equally me. to blame. I actually, I think I have that bookmark like in like, my home. Currently. Like in your home in Brooklyn? Yes. <laughs> okay. That's amazing. You have to look for it and tell us. I yeah. may or may not do that. <laughs> we, we'll see. Yeah. So the, dif- the, pro- the difference is that instead of a project about an author, it's like a writing contest that Mallory is trying to win. But otherwise, it's real, real similar. Well, I'm, I am most excited. And I'm not sure if you agree, but I am most excited to hear what our labor specialist and our political theorist has to say about a book entitled Mallory on Strike. So I feel like Emily should yes. first. Um, is this the proper way to strike? Yeah. Is yeah. this how you strike? And great cue. So <laughs> as you learn in Indoctrination to Marx 101, you cannot strike alone. I, I feel like I just quoted like the Liverpool Premier League team motto or something weird like that. <laughs> well, my first question when I was reading this was like, you don't get her sign that she's on strike until page 104 out of 150. <laughs> yeah, I was like, when is the strike coming? Yeah, so I was like, wait, is she does she not actually go on strike? Is the is the title a misnomer? I was wondering that. Mm. Um, and then I was wondering whether the title was like used inappropriately. And then we get a like definition of strike from Mallory on page 105. So immediately after she creates the sign saying she's on strike. So basically Mallory's like, uh, my parents are taking advantage of me and using me as free labor. And I'm trying to create space to write this story so that I can potentially win this prize. And no one is taking my need to have space to do this work seriously, which is like kind of, I mean, that's not the kind of claim that a person on strike demanding like better working conditions is making, right? Like necessarily. You don't think it's better working conditions to to know when she's going to be responsible for the younger kids versus not versus being on call 24-7? Sure. Yeah, I think it is. No matter how you slice it, she's still like not getting really paid to do like all this very vital reproductive labor. Mm-hmm. But so so initially my encounter with the book was like, is strike being used appropriately in in the title? And like, what does Mallory know about a strike? And then once she finally goes on strike, which like I wasn't sure was coming, frankly, I didn't remember. (laughs) I was wondering like what she would have known about what strikes are given what year was this published? 91. 90s. Yeah. 91. 91. In Connecticut. And so, okay. So on page 105, she defines a strike to her siblings who were like, what does that mean? That that you're on strike as um oh so the narration says it was clear that my brothers and sisters had no idea what quote on strike end quote meant people go on strike when they want their working conditions to change i explained or when they want higher wages <laughs> mm-hmm. um and then jordan's like you mean a bigger allowance but she like doesn't get a bigger allowance she just gets mm-hmm. like less work and i think that's like a fairly reasonable assessment for a uh, how old is she 11 yeah an 11 year old to have of what a strike is but i was like oh what would what would the like discourse around striking have been then and, mm-hmm. and there and it's kind of interesting because so like connecticut has historically been quite 
friendly to unions. Hmm. So like in the early in like the 1800s, it was like actually a massive. The economy was primarily industrial, and there were like lots of textile factories. And some of the earliest women's um, labor associations were in Connecticut. But then when you have the kind of fed at the level of federal government kind of demand that la- that labor unions be recognized as a like valid party to arbiting the the conditions of labor right so in 1935 you have the National Labor Relations Board established right which like lays some groundwork and legally at the federal level authorizes labor unions to actually you know um arbitrate in favor of mm, mm-hmm. you know on behalf of all the workers right so like a, a union in essence, for those of us who don't know, <laughs> act as a, a bargaining party. So the idea, the concept is that like, if everyone joins a union, then you, the bargaining power is like collective rather than singular. So that a bunch of people bargaining for conditions is like more effective at securing a basic mm-hmm. level of, you know, need than like if every single individual worker is bargaining for their own conditions. In part, in, because of time, right? Like if you, if you, a worker are asked to work all these hours, then like, how are you supposed to have time to bargain on your own behalf for why those hours ought to be reduced or why they ought to be compensated differently? And so to have a Mm -hmm. union means that you can have, you know, more support and that also you can withdraw your labor power Mm -hmm. as a bargaining chip at like a way larger scale, right? So if we all agree that we're members of this union and that if our employers don't meet our demands and then we and the threat that we that we or the the power that we have as workers is to collectively withdraw all of our labor. And mm-hmm. so how are they going to make surplus value if they're not if our labor is not um, if they don't have access to our labor? So like a lot of people think that the United States didn't really have a socialist movement, which is like just wrong. <laughs> like there was a very robust socialist movement in the early late 1800s, early 1900s. And then you have. Um, at the time that you have the New Deal, right, which is like the very first moment of any kind of federal level of social welfare provision, social welfare provision in the United States, you have the creation of the National Labor Relations Board. But immediately everyone hates it, right? Because like the whole thing about people in power in the US is that they are rich and they care about their money. And so like for people to argue that their ability to withdraw their labor power is politically fungible was like a very huge threat, right, to the structure of power. So people, there's a lot of backlash against this. And then like 10 years later, after you have like a federally recognized existence of unions as appropriate bargainers, you have the Taft-Hartley Act. Do you guys know what that is? No. Okay. So the Taft-Hartley Act basically passed a bunch of rules that really restricted what labor unions could do and what their bargaining power was. So it acted as sort of an amendment to the Wagner Act, which created the National Labor Relations Board Mm -hmm. and like put a bunch of conditions on like size and scope of workplace for unions to be eligible. And also, so if it's like a tiny place that doesn't have that many employees, it's like, oh, you're not allowed to have a union because that would be too much of a burden for this business owner. Yeah. And it also put, it also had a lot of rules about like what unions could and could not do. So it like explicitly outlawed some activity that that a union in theory ought to be able to do, right? Like you couldn't just have an arbitrary like walkout. It would have to have a, you'd have to have a strike that was authorized by a vote, like all kinds of shit. And so basically what the Taft-Hartley Act inaugurates is a f- state level 
uh, regulation of union activity and, and labor activity. That always works out great. <laughs> great. I always so what happens in Connecticut sides of states. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, is that it was once this like really robust, industrial, very union friendly state. And then factories start moving to states that are less friendly to unions. And so like in the 60s and 70s, basically, the entire economy of Connecticut is reconfigured. Industry essentially leaves. And then and Connecticut begins to get wealthier and wealthier at the top echelon and the gap between the richest and the poorest widens, which was a pattern that happened across the United States in general, but it's like Connecticut in in particular. And then you have like a move to unionize the social and the social sector. And so Connecticut now to this day has like a higher rate of unionization in um, the public sector than like almost any other state. But when you say in the public sector, you mean like government workers or like teachers or mm-hmm. yeah, those kinds of yeah. employees. Okay. Yeah. I know. I, I just realized I said social first, but I meant public. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but there's one, there was one like major holdout in mm. the industrial union sector, which there was a four year long strike in from 1986 to 1990. What? In Connecticut. <laughs> in this like old school, like gun manufacturer where they were trying to like restructure or the, the union, they had been unionized for a long time. And the, the company was like threatening to move the factory and the, the workers just like walked out. There were like 600 people at this plant and they didn't go back to work for four years. And eventually in 1990, there was this crazy kind of landmark reconfiguration where like the state partially bought out the, the corporation and then they let the workers who are striking union members like buy in to to the company so it hmm. became so, this, like worker owned like partially worker owned industrial entity and like to this day it still exists in west hartford so, and they, they tried to build this like worker owned compound and it was like this kind of huh. like hippy dippy like lowercase d direct democracy like experiment in industrial production that was like quasi successful but also an industry that is does not necessarily jive politically with right the yeah. to make guns. political views of of kinetic of the, like the blue part of connecticut's yeah. politics isn't that so, fucking fascinating yeah so basically <laughs> yeah. listeners what emily is saying is this mallory on strike is inspired by this event yeah right yeah i mean west hartford can't be that far from stony brook connecticut's a small state well i wonder whether or not this was not get like getting so much coverage on the East coast that someone was like, I don't know, maybe we should help the middle schoolers like figure out what the heck is happening in this like news cycle or or they might've been like encountering direct action and, you know, like how do we break it down for kids in order for them to understand like what's at stake in this thing that's occupying so much of their parents like time or, or the news cycle. I have no idea. That's so interesting. Yeah. I thought it was really fascinating. And what a giant dialectic in terms of the fact that we're talking about firearms, because I feel like, you know, when I hear worker owned collective, like it's always like a shitty coffee shop or like, I don't know, like it's not usually a no, gun, the gun co-op. You've plant. never heard of it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's really interesting. But the tension around it was really, it seems like was very intense because they hired a bunch of essentially scabs to replace all these workers. But the union was like so powerful and influential that like 
they just couldn't justify continuing like replacing all of the long time long term workers with these scabs. And so but they didn't keep on a lot of the workers in the interim period. So like part of the deal that the union ended up negotiating with the owners was that those workers would be let go at the end of the contract negotiation. <laughs> wow. Yeah. But I'm like, oh, that's so fascinating. I don't know that I would have been tuned in at that age to like if there had been a major labor dispute in the region where I grew up that I would have been paying attention to it. You know what I mean? But like maybe it w- took up so much space Yeah, in, in that particular like geographic corner that it was like, oh, we have to figure out how to talk about this to kids. <laughs> That's really interesting. I, I mean, I was on the picket lines a lot as a teacher's kid. So there were a lot of big public school teacher strikes in the 80s in Sacramento. And, yeah. uh, you know, I either wasn't allowed to go to school or like was told not to listen to the scab teachers, <laughs> like, you know, lots of that kind of thing. And but I don't think if it was like in an industry that my parents weren't in that I would have noticed or paid attention to it. Well, right. And it's like interesting, too, because it it was a sort of late vestige of the like massive deindustrialization of the Northeast, you know, I mean, like now the economy in Connecticut is like big corporations and like service Finance. workers, you know, and like the gap between those two people and like neither, neither sector, which is like deeply unionized, but still Connecticut has these like incra- crazy high rates of, of what, like I said before, public service unionization. So it's, it's just interesting because like the, entire landscape of the economy has changed, but the state's openness or welcomeness to unions in general seems to have endured uh, mm-hmm. in spite of the the like rate of deindustrialization. Well, I feel like it's easy to support them if they're not as much of a threat in some ways, right? I don't know. I feel yeah. like being pro-union is also sort of like a, you know, it's like a democratic virtue signaling Thing, right? If it doesn't affect you and your sector that much sometimes. Well, it's interesting because that's not necessarily the case, right? Like there are deep red states where, and there are industries that we don't think of as industries that Democrats like, such mm-hmm. as mining industries and things like that, that are deeply, deeply that's true. pro-union. And so it's not that neat of a, right. of a mapping on, but you could see how a state that has has to protect like really wealthy interests might want to undercut the power of union to negotiate against um, owners. But like there have been some attempts when, when the state legislature has leaned more red than blue to introduce right to work Mm -hmm. laws in Connecticut. And they've never gained any traction really. So like right, right to work laws are state level legislature that say that you don't, you're not obligated to join a union, even if you work at a place that's unionized. And Mm -hmm. so like, those tend to be more conservative states that are less friendly to um, labor. And like one of my favorite stats that's horrifying, but like I think really revealing for- Emily likes to ruin things. Go on. Yeah. For like why these are bad laws is that like in right to work states, there are like eons more claims filed with the EEOC about like workplace discrimination than in states where unions are- um, prevalent and where the laws are like favorable to the mm-hmm. union power of of negotiation. That's really so like interesting. you see crazy more claims about like um, racial and sexual workplace discrimination in states with right to work laws than in it, than in other states, which I think is very revealing. Sarah, very sad and disturbing though. I the whole time you're talking, uh, uh, 
this is a question for Anne. I keep picturing like a stereotype of like a very rich, like white Connecticut couple, <laughs> like kind of like a Thurston Howell, the third sort of with the, from Gillian's Island and his wife. And I'm wondering, Anne, what do you think that couple is named? Like, what are their first names? Just like a generic <laughs> old wealthy couple? No, but like Connecticut lovey, you know, like that, that talk mm. like this kind of thing. I don't know. I'm not very good with rich white people names. I was thinking that the wife would be named like Buffy and then the husband, I don't know what his name is. It's probably like John or William or David or something, but he's like the third. So he goes by Trey. Uh, Trip. Trip. Yeah. The trip man. Oh God. Trey. Like Trey cool. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's the trip man. It's Sharon's former love interest before she slummed it with a, like (laughs) commoner lawyer, Richard. Yeah. (laughs) With the mailman son. Yeah. 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 Oh, man. Anyway, so technically Mallory doesn't really go on strike. <laughs> it's more Fair like enough. it's more like Mallory gets mad. Is mm-hmm. the name of the book. Well, she does refuse. She does withhold her labor power. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I, I think she made up for it too much. She doesn't collectively bargain. <laughs> no, there's no bargaining. Really? Yeah. Also, her the adventure is like, OK, you put in way more effort into well, that exactly. than you would have. Yeah. actually kind of, the ending kind of pissed me off. I was like, what? <laughs> no, Wait, one, which part? Just like the end where she like puts on this like extravaganza of adventure and, and activities for her brothers and sisters. I was like, where did that yeah. come from? Like you did that in like a day? Well, she realized she missed them and she loves them. And as, uh, you know, as a previous yeah. listener and pointed she went out, to the she can mall only hang out with them. She cried because they would have liked those earrings. I was like, okay, first of all, I do not buy that at all. I know. She's been sick of them for weeks. She goes to the mall once and is like, no, my siblings who are 10 minutes away, I miss them so much. It's like, no, you fucking don't. I know. (laughs) You're 11. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. It was a little mushy. Yeah, that's fair. Anyway, (laughs) that's all. I have no like conclusions or things. I just think, I think it's interesting that like, she knows what a strike is. Um, and I wondered like why she would know it. Yeah. Why that would be kind of accessible to her. And I think the labor history of Connecticut is interesting. Yeah, totally. And she knew all about that gun factory. I guess so. Um, Yeah. (laughs) She's like, look, I won't make guns if I don't get paid enough, you know, very similar to what she's doing in the Pike Mm -hmm. household. I agree. (laughs) Well, I, I was interested in Mallory's emotion regulation in this book or sort of lack thereof. And I think that, you know, she just, First of all, I think it was pretty. Oh yeah, accurate Wyatt, for she's like such a bee. Same she's like, well, she's like, oh, I want. I'm not even going to bother telling my friends that I have this writing contest that's important to me. I'm just going to shut down and like say no to stuff for no ostensible reason. Like, what? Why? I yeah. mean, makes sense to me. I was going to say, ask Anne because I bet Anne would do something similar. Anne? <laughs> well, maybe like, yeah, I could see myself doing that. I'm just yeah, like, why? Why? Because writing is hard. And I need to be left alone. Right. But why wouldn't you tell the club uh, just for the next couple of weeks? I have this really important contest. I would probably do that. But I'm also 43, though. (laughs) Yeah. At 11, maybe not. At 11, maybe not. (laughs) Yeah. I will say, I think, you know, very often Mallory and Jesse get aged up, right? Because they're hanging out with all these 13 year olds and the story is about babysitting. And so they, you know, we've talked a lot about how magical Jesse is and how overly responsible they both are. And so I, I think Mal acted more like Eleven in this book than in a lot of the other books. So not making her needs very clear. Okay, that's fair. 
you know, mm-hmm. wishing people would read her mind, wishing people would just leave her alone and let her do the things that she wanted to do. Mm-hmm. I think that's pretty standard for an 11 year old, actually. Uh, yeah. Also, I kept on picturing, I know June is 12 now. No, she's but, still 11. Oh, she's 11. Okay. Yeah. Like, I was imagining like June taking care of like seven <laughs> children. And I was like, this is just not right. Had made yeah. a child do this. Yeah. Now June is a youngest, and maybe if she was an oldest with seven younger siblings, she would have a little bit more patience and skills in those areas. But still, yeah, yeah. it's a lot. Yeah. A lot. So I thought that that was pretty realistic, and I also thought I think we have I think this is a legitimate pattern that happens with people, but we also have a cultural narrative around this idea of people not expressing their limits, not as Emily's saying, just saying what's important to them. I'm, I'm working on this story for the next couple of weeks, guys, or, hey, mom and dad, I'm noticing that you're relying on me a lot and I actually have my own life, right? But just like simmering and getting more and more frustrated and then blowing up and saying, I might have to quit the club and don't bother me for two whole days or whatever. And so I just, you know, I do think that is a thing that people do. I do think it's a relatively easy fix, <laughs> you know, if you notice that pattern in yourself expressing your needs directly, expressing your limits before they get crossed is a good life choice. And, you know, usually people don't do it often because they're afraid of the consequences, right? They're afraid of the other person not understanding or pushing back or not believing them. And so then they wait until they're no longer at the point where they can be effectively assertive. They're at the point where they're only aggressive, to Mm -hmm. say anything. And then that usually causes more damage. If she said at the meeting, guys, I can't take any jobs for two weeks. And Christy might've pushed back a little bit. Let's be honest. Like, what do you mean? But also it's just two weeks. Right. And then you just manage it and you say, I know, and this is what I need to do. People are going to get a lot less upset than if you scream at them or shut down completely. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So just a little, Mm -hmm. little thought I had about that. Like, I I don't know that we've seen this pattern a ton before. We've seen it a little, I feel like we've seen it a little bit with Marianne and maybe a little bit with Claudia sometimes of kind of going along with things until a limit gets hit. But Mm -hmm. I do think that's something that people, most people learn during adolescence and their twenties. So again, an 11 year old is not going to be awesome at doing that. So that was the main thing that jumped out to me. I think we also get some, some attempts at behaviorism in this book, um, which we haven't talked about in a little while. But I don't, I think there would have been better options for Mallory. So one thing she did is, you know, the strike, the putative strike of the title is really an attempt to use extinction on her parents. So she withdraws, you know, theoretically, she's been reinforcing the behavior of them asking her for help with the younger kids by providing Mm -hmm. the help. Mm -hmm. So she withdraws the reinforcer and waits for the requests to go down. But we've talked about extinction before on this podcast. When you withdraw a reinforcer, if you think about that rat pressing the lever, first you're going to get a lot more of the demand. The Mm. rat is going to push the lever a bunch more times when the pellet of food stops coming because it's going to be like, where the hell is my pellet? And then it gives up. And so, you know, and I think we see that a little bit. I think her, you know, when the door is closed, her siblings try to come more at first and the parents Mm -hmm. try to ask her for things because she didn't do any orienting to, again, express her needs. And she also didn't reinforce the alternative behavior she wanted. So there were a couple times in the book, and it's been a couple weeks since I read it, but there are a couple times that I remember where Mr. and Mrs. Pike would ask her instead of just assume, like, hey, Mal, would you be able to? Which right. I think and is she what she wants. No. Right, she could have said no. Or if it was a time when she could help, 
She could have said, thanks so much for asking. I really appreciate when you ask me. I'm happy yeah. to do it. Right. So if she wants more of that and less of the assumption of like, oh, Mal will take care of it. Reinforcing the thing that she wants more of rather than just withdrawing probably would have gotten the behavior change faster. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know the yeah. like throwing a fit and then having a talk at the end seemed to work pretty good for her. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> that's true. Although, and again, I think this was a letter we read a couple weeks ago about how like two things came up in this book that um, our previous listener that we read in the um, Mother's Day surprise, not Mother's Day surprise, sorry, baby prayed episode mm. mentioned the like, don't hang out with your siblings unless you're getting paid. And then mm-hmm. um, also like buy all of your own things. So even this like special Mallory Pike day where her parents took her alone to the mall, she was like buying everything for herself. Mm-hmm. So it didn't strike me as that special of a day, especially because John Pike is a in, like a corporate lawyer. Like it's I know they have eight kids, but he's doing OK for himself. Well, their house so. is only medium and their family yeah. is large. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I feel like Mallory was very bitter when she was describing Christie's huge house. Oh, mm. I think that's just you reading it. <laughs> I sense some bitterness. Okay. Mm. Fair enough. Fair enough. I did. I do think, however, that this is the first appearance of Mexican food in Stony Brook. They went to Casa Grande for lunch. Yeah, I wrote that down. <laughs> oh, yeah, I guess so. Yeah. I actually had like a list of things that have nothing to do with the usual stuff I talk about that I thought were funny. I've yeah. never heard the term stair-step kids before. Yeah. No, me neither. Yeah. I like. Is that? Yeah. Just like, like the 90s version of like Irish twins or what? And I was like, <laughs> is that like a derogatory term or is that like a descriptive term? Yeah. She also makes a joke about her teacher where she says acute, but doesn't laugh about it. No, acute is one of the Stony Brook slang terms. Oh, I but I thought it was a joke because he follows in the next paragraph up with a pun about right and right. Oh, like mm. angles? No, I don't think so. No. I think they just R I G H T W R I T. Uh uh. Oh, you think that's just the No, girls acute is like playing. distance. Okay, yeah. okay. Like distant, yeah. Um also like the library board has an emergency meeting <laughs> on a Saturday. Um Oh, and then like the teacher tells Mallory, like, well, if you're not you're not gonna re- you're not really a writer until you've like finished your story. And I yeah. feel like it- I feel like a seventh grade or a sixth grade teacher is like not going to say that. <laughs> yeah, that seemed a little harsh to me, too. Yeah. But but then also I also noted Mexican food. Yeah. yeah. I think it's the Casa first grande. Yeah. Casa grande. Uh-huh. Big house. The big house. <laughs> yeah, it was good. The other like silly thing that I wrote down that I don't even remember now is I guess there's a classmate in chapter 10 named Carver Ensign. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I just thought that was no, it's such... David Michael's friend. Oh, whose parents don't let him come oh, right. over because Christie's babysitting and yeah. the parents aren't home. Yeah. And I'm like, that is the richest rich kid name we've had yet in this book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's pretty good. <sighs> and those parents were like, mm. yeah, yeah. Oh, that was a weird back and forth type of thing. Mm-hmm. I thought they were like trying to one up each other. Christie's like, yeah. I'm not going to let me babysit. Well, guess what? I'm not letting my brother go to your house. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so good. Yeah. I liked it. All right, Annie. Okay. What'd you notice? Well, a couple things that I just personally related to is Young Authors Day, which we also mm-hmm. had. Mm-hmm. And oh, really? Yeah. I wrote a book called Ernie the Oddball. It was my first one, I believe. It was about a nerdy worm. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah. That was fun. We did that for many years, I feel. They're like and picture you won books. first place, I feel I like. I did win first place. Out. 
Whoa. Back to our yeah. trend of Anne winning yeah. all the contests just, in elementary school. I just chatted Esme in the chat box and said, mention my first place. No, I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> I was like, I didn't see it, but yeah. Yeah. Um, do you have it at your house or do your parents have it at their house? It's probably in the garage. Okay. At my house. Right. Somewhere. We got to find that. Yeah. Nice. Another thing, I was bit by a hamster <laughs> in the eighth grade. Very in corner. <laughs> very hard. It hurt very bad. I had to get a tetanus shot. I'm just I'm just putting that out there. Okay. Anyway, this but, is the kind of content our listeners yeah. tune in for. This but is the, the thing, real stuff. yeah, this is the real stuff. So one thing that caught you know? my I know one thing that caught my attention was like the prevalence of puppets. There are a lot of like puppets. <laughs> That's not what I thought you were gonna say. Yeah. Well, okay. First, okay. So they occasionally will mention Muppets in the book, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, it was, this time it was Fozzie and Kermit. You know, I was like, okay, like, had there been a Muppet movie out recently? No, but whatever. It's just, you know, the Muppets are just there in culture. Yeah. Muppets Take Manhattan was 85. I think it's 84. I looked it up. Okay. And then there was at the award ceremony for Young Authors Day. There was a group there called the Hand Jive Puppet Group from New York City who performed. I know. I was like, what the fuck? And I was like, what the <laughs> fuck? The Hand Jive? I'm like, cool. Then also then all the kids made hand puppets at the their little like adventure, adventure day. thing. I was yeah. like, that's a lot of puppets for one. But There's a lot know. of puppets. Oh, Jim Henson had just died in 1990. That's possible. Well, what's interesting yeah. is I did a little, I did a quick Google of the ghostwriters Mm-hmm. They are they're a married couple actually. Oh, okay. um, and they have written a lot of books. But about they, puppets? About puppets. <laughs> the Puppet Sitters Club was their song. Oh, no. <laughs> no. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> what's interesting, this didn't this didn't happen until 1999, but they actually had uh, a humor column in the Sesame Street magazine. So oh. they may have just had Muppet interests. Mm-hmm. Or puppet hobbyists. Yeah. Um, okay. A, a lot of people really like the Muppets. Yes. A lot of people really like the Muppets. Okay. Emily. So. This reminds me of all the stuff about that came out about Jason Siegel after forgetting Sarah Marshall, where people on yeah. set were like, he's like really into puppets. Yeah. <laughs> the whole puppet musical. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Like a lot. Mm. Well, and then uh, he went on anyway. and made the Muppets. Yeah. There's a passion for puppets. Um, the other thing was, I just, they know, band-aids. I was wondering when, I feel like they use band-aids a lot in all these books, all these kids on band-aids. Sure. The first decorative band-aid. Can you guess what it was? Oh, like the first time it had hearts or oh, mm-hmm. oh, what it was? Yeah. What was the, what was on it? Howdy Doody is my mm-hmm. guess. Close-ish in Emily. the world of Howdy Doody. I have no idea. Do you want a hint? Sure. Woo-hoo! Wait, that's not good. It's Mickey Mouse. That wasn't a good Mickey Mouse. <laughs> I was gonna say Mickey Mouse. I got there it. We go. Thank you. Thank you. That it was, was really in, good, Emily. It was in 1951. Hi guys. Band Aid introduced the first. Oh wow! I know. Who knew that Emily? Had You're like a voice mime over here. Mimic voice mimic. Amazing. Can you do uh, Donald? No. No. Okay. I cannot. As me? No. Okay, my last little bit. Be frog here. I can, but I wow. can't. Oh, yeah. I thought Kermit was in the room. 
with me right then. Can, can you do any cartoon or Muppet voices? No, I'm not good at voices. Oh. Mike is very good at voices. He would you love can't even to do Janice. I bet you could do Janice. I can't. I, you think I practice Janice or something at home? <laughs> no. I'm not taking off my clothes for you or anybody, even if it is art. Like, wow. That's, that's Janice. Wow. <laughs> anyway, sorry. What were you saying? Okay. My last little bit of pop culture trivia is who is it? Someone sings this song, Playmates. Let me hang on. I have to like get to the page. It is on page 113. And I was like, is this a real song? It goes. Uh, playmates come out and play with me and bring your dollars dollies three blah 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 so it's when if you google it a lot of just like kids versions of the song will come up on youtube it's like uh it goes playmates come out and play with me and bring your dollies three uh, blah 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 so i was like oh it's a real song and then i was like who wrote it is it like a folk song so it was actually a guy named saxy dell who was part of an orchestra in like the 1930s with the band leader, Hal Kemp. And Dell, he was an instrumentalist and he played the saxophone, which is why I think he was called Saxy. S-S-A-X-I-E. Good good prediction. Yeah. And he became the vocalist for a lot of their novelty songs. And then in 1940, he quote unquote wrote the song Playmates, which basically kind of copied the tune of another song. And the original writer kind of sued him, but then they settled out of court. Um, anyway, Playmates went on to be kind of like a 1950s hit. The Fontaine sisters sing it. Mm. But what's interesting about Saxy Dell is he started his own big band in 1940 and kind of played throughout the war. And then post-war, he led a naval air station band with a singer who was 14 years old at the time, Healy Smith. What? No way! <laughs> Oh my god, I got so excited. That's my daughter is named after Keely Smith, you guys. Yeah, that's a little Amazing. fun fact. Yeah. She was only 14. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yikes. This is an interesting cultural reference, though, because usually we make fun of Anna Martin for putting in a lot of, you know, boomer references, but this mm-hmm. is like a silent generation reference. Old. Yeah, this is very old. Yeah. There was oh. another song in this book that I just found that I forgot. I didn't notice Playmates on... Page 122, they're they're hearing the guy at the mall rapping about the teeter streeter. Oh, yeah. The, oh, yeah. Like, toy. It's like a skateboard. And then it's like, I don't know. Can you do one of these raps, Anne? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. Come on. Neither of you is going to rap. You're going to make me no, do it. Sorry. Yeah. Just do it quick. Can you be uh, either? You either have to beatbox or rap and I'll do this the other is, one. No, I'm not. <laughs> beatboxing okay fine anyway maybe we'll try to maybe we'll try to figure it out but you can play with it at home and you can i don't it think it, it is i don't i believe it is not a real toy no 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 it is not yeah all right Amazing. okay do, do we have any candy yes there is candy we have pretzels which is not junk food malamars <laughs> love a pretzel m&ms and tootsie Pops. oh malamars mm. again mm-hmm. we gotta order some before it gets too warm to get them oh yeah what? so tally's they don't sell. They won't sell them in the summer months because they melt. Because they melt. All right, yeah. I'm sending Emily some today. <laughs> Absolutely not. Yeah, I will not. You can't stop them from coming. Do you have any idea how many root beer rails I had to throw away? <laughs> what? <laughs> oh, sorry. Are you going to come to my house and eat them, Anne? Yes. <laughs> when? 
<laughs> this summer. Okay. <laughs> Let me get them out of the garbage. <laughs> you can put the Malamars in the freezer until Anne shows up. Yeah. Okay. okay. So tallies, one health food, one bossy, one almond, one sophisticated, one sensitive, and another One thin. almond. One almond. <laughs> what? Like I have one eye? <laughs> Uh, I'm talking about you. <laughs> Guess she is, Esme. <laughs> okay, I had one favorite weird line, which is that Don calls Stacy an old tightwad. <laughs> That's pretty good. When Stacy's like, "Oh, I'll give you some money for some kitty cat stuff," and Don's like, "What you, you old tightwad?" I was like, yeah. "What? <laughs> Why? How?" Yeah. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. The only one I had written down is only one pike kid at a time can go on strike. <laughs> uh, I like good. that one. I have <laughs> minus boo-boo ate your sandwiches. <laughs> Those are all so stupid. <laughs> yeah, I'm good with any of them. I mean, uh, I think old tightwad more fits our aesthetic for <laughs> the visual oh. representation of our episode <laughs> I'm, okay yeah. i'm into it mallory on strike old tightwad yes yeah perfect yeah i mean also like a good descriptor of the boss against yeah. whom we strike right you know that old yep. tightwad won't give us higher wages i think Fair it really enough. works it does work it does work this is oh, em- just, like em- won em- this pretty easily emily's like campaigning for yeah, her line but <laughs> Anne and i couldn't couldn't you know oh get you the don't energy. care yeah. You don't care what our episode is titled? Wow. Oh, I know. So still tables are turned. Emily's yeah. usually too cool for school. <laughs> I am still too cool for school. <laughs> How I many uh, universities are you teaching at this semester? How many classes? Wow. Okay. We're going there. <laughs> Getting punchy. Okay. Pizza toast. too cool for all of them. Okay. Pizza toast. What should be pizza toast too? Hmm. I mean, hmm. I feel like something that labor unions gave us, like, weekends or mm. you know health care yeah i think we, we don't really better. have health care yeah. no though, we don't so yeah <laughs> some people do mm-hmm. yeah i mean i'm <laughs> i'm happy to pizza toast to the weekend love a weekend man it is friday it's friday night right now emily's gonna go do something fun in 30 seconds okay mm-hmm. <laughs> pizza toast to the weekend not the musical artist but saturday and Sunday. great Pizza toast to weekends. To the weekend. And fuck the weekend. <laughs> like, wow. <Yikes. laughs> wow. I just didn't think that. I thought it was clear that we weren't talking about the band. I have no opinions. I have no idea what they sound like. I think it's just a, a person. It's one person. Oh, right. But there's like a letter missing, right? Like grinder. No. It's really? the weekend, though, I believe. It's the weekend. Yeah. I know there's a letter missing. Yes. There's no. There's only two E's. There's no it's w-e-e-k-n-d see i know something about them him it's weakened yeah it's the weakened Mm. okay well yeah okay dion warwick called him out for it this episode of stuck in stony brook is now adjourned (laughs) thank you to anna martin for everything stuck in stony brook is edited by emily crandall theme song written and recorded by gary schaller performed by the band kid kid you can follow us on Instagram at Stuck in Stony Brook or find us on our website, stuckinstonybrook.com. Need some books that we mentioned? Buy them from our bookshop and support both the local independent bookstore and your favorite series literature analysis podcast. Find us at bookshop.org slash shop slash Stuck in Stony Brook. Lastly, if you're feeling doubly generous and you want to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, that would be super helpful. You're the best friend the girl could ask for. <laughs> <laughs>